We are um, in the book of Ephesians, so if you want to open your Bible, we're in Ephesians chapter 6 today. But before you get there, I wanted to have just another brief word about the um, marriage uh, conference because I've been asked, you know, what is it? What's it going to be about? Um, and it's actually a unique opportunity for us. So um, one of the, well, back up. About 15 years ago, I was, uh, I, I came across a, a book that um, was actually being used in a Christian uh, family uh, seminar at the seminary that I attended, and it was said seven principles for making marriage work. And you know, this I looked at the back cover, and it turns out this guy named John Gottman, who's a professor at the University of Washington, started a marriage lab in the '90s, and basically has created this lab where he studies couples. So talk about awkward, but uh, he watches couples. They, they, uh, he has an apartment that's built in, and they, these couples agree to come and spend 24 hours there. They have everything they need, um, but they're videotaped, and they have uh, medical devices on them, like measuring everything from heart rate to respiration, all of that. And um, they obviously did not record them in the bathroom or in the bedroom, but uh, they did record them the rest of the time. And they were able to go back and unpack this. And one of the things that Gottman did is uh, he came to the conclusion he's, he's able, this is this is staff He's able to, with about 85 to 90% accuracy, predict divorce. If he can watch a couple argue, like have a 15-minute interaction about something, conflict of some kind, it jumps to like 90, 95. Um, and so he has, out of that, written this uh, book. It's now in its second edition uh, called Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work. Here's the interesting factor about it. He basically discovered... Christian maturity equals healthy marriage. I'm not, I'm not being facetious, but basically his research bears out. Um, if a couple you know, practices the one another's of the New Testament with each other, they're pretty much good. They, they've already crossed off all seven practices of uh, principles for making marriage work. But what we're going to do during the seminars, walk through it, because he has enormous amount of practical information and some insights and some practices and some exercises and things like that. Um, and what we're going to do is uh, the, the, the seminar is going to be, our conference is going to be based around this, but it's going to include a lot of interaction, a lot of discussions, couples like sharing how they do certain things. So uh, I was talking with uh, Mike this week, and he was like, well, it almost sounds like it would be great as an opportunity to invite maybe somebody who's uh, seeking or exploring Christianity, maybe a couple that you know that, that would be open to coming um, and hearing about this, because the book and the research is Gottman's research. It's not Christian research. It's the University of Washington. Um, and so we're going to be going through that. going to share how covenant, the, the covenant that we have, like, informs that and shapes that, our ability and the grace that we need to actually do these things that he has laid out. Um, so it will have a Christian tone to it, but what it's going to actually do is a bit of, be a bit of an apologetic for why the vision, biblical vision for marriage is actually bears out in reality. Um, so if you, want, if you have a friend um, who's not a Christian or a couple who's not a Christian, but who might be open exploring and just sort of learning more, this could be a great opportunity to invite them. One of the uh, great Christian thinkers of the uh, 20th century was a man named Francis Schaeffer. Uh, if you never get to, if you ever get to uh, read about him or hear about him, he lived a very fascinating uh, life as a Christian uh, intellect. Wrote, wrote quite a bit, um, and he and his wife had a uh, place in France called Le Brie that was a chateau, huge chateau. And they, in the 70s, 60s, and 70s, they just let. Uh, all these, um, you know, people backpacking, young adults, college students backpacking through Europe would come and stay with him. And the one condition was you'd have to get off drugs. And they had like tons of people get off drugs at their Labrie. And you had to help. 
around the place, but you could stay as long as you want. And every night, he would have a philosophical discussion uh, about the Christian worldview, and they would ask questions, and he would gently destroy their little fabric, little fabrics of reality. And slowly, they would be uh, most of them. Many of them became Christians through it. Um, so he's a was a brilliant, gifted thinker, and he said this at the University of uh, Notre Dame in. Um, 1981, when he was addressing, he said, Christianity is not a series of truths in the plural, but rather truth spelled with a capital T. Truth about total reality, not just about religious things. Biblical Christianity is truth concerning total reality and the intellectual holding of that truth and then living in the light of that truth. And it's interesting that the Christian faith in the New Testament is pictured this way. It's not pictured as a a label. In fact, um, Christian is not even a label used but a couple of times in the New Testament at all for Christians. And the the, the Christian term that's most often used to describe or term to describe someone who is a Christian is someone who is in Christ, which which sounds a lot more like a location than a hobby. Right or uh, something they do on this side or this part of their life. It's not a not a habit of going to church, but a comprehensive truth that a person lives in. Um, and the only parallel that the New Testament, because it's so comprehensive, could could really paint to this is literally being alive. So people eat, sleep, work, play, dream, love, laugh, all of this because they're alive. And there's no part of being alive that someone would say, "Well, that's not relevant to me because." That's not part of me being alive, right? (laughs) Every part of everything you do is by definition part of you being alive. In the Christian faith, that's exactly how it's viewed. That's why Jesus used the terminology of being born again. It's an entire new reality of being in Christ, where Christ is the center of everything and everything, every single corner of our life is impacted from the most mundane moments like getting up tomorrow morning and drinking your cup of coffee uh, to the greatest moments of your life, getting married, uh, a, a promotion, graduating, whatever those things might be, it all fits into this. And this is the framework that Ephesians, Paul is really laying out in Ephesians. We've seen Paul writing uh, this letter to the Roman uh, to the church in the Roman city of Ephesus uh, around 60 A.D. somewhere around 10 years after he had been there and helped plant that church, and he begins with this big glorious gospel. If you remember early on, first three chapters, this big glorious gospel that we are caught up in because of Christ, and it's a a new reality where we have been blessed in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing in. Christ. But then he brings it down, right? He, he, he's like, this isn't a, some ethereal, like, you know, some way out there way to live life. It's a very practical reality. It comes down into the experiences. So in chapters four through six, he gets into how we treat each other, how we, um, how we interact uh, with, uh, with each other, how we make our time count in this world, um, how we understand marriage. We looked at that a few weeks ago. And then last week, we looked at how, how uh, Paul teaches how the gospel impacts parenting. Uh, this week, we're turning the corner and focusing on how the gospel impacts work in chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Now, I'm going to read this, and at first you're going to be like, what does this have to do with work? I'm going to explain that in a moment, but just follow along, if you will. When I'm done, I will say, this is the word of the Lord. I invite you to affirm with me. Thanks be to God. Paul says this, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. 
Masters, do the same thing to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, real quick, because I've thrown out resources the last few weeks. One book on this that you might find helpful is called The Gospel at Work, How the Gospel Gives uh, New Purpose and Meaning to Our Jobs by Sebastian Traeger and Greg Gilbert. It's a, not a heavy read, but it's a helpful book. If you really want to understand not just, um, you know, uh, oh, work is, I'm supposed to work hard, but like how does vocation fit into your calling in life as a person, as a follower of Jesus and that doesn't matter whether it's actual uh, professional work or whether you're uh, a stay-at-home mom or dad. There are, uh, there are aspects of that that's work, right? Um, all right, now before we start unpacking a couple of truths here that I think flow out of this passage, I want to address the giant pink elephant in the room, right? Slavery. This passage obviously uses the word bond slave. Other translations actually just say slaves outright. And there are plenty plenty of people who would hold up this and say, look, the Bible condones slavery. In fact, a few years ago in the New York Times, there was an op-ed piece where the person literally said, of course the New Testament encouraged slavery. It told uh, slaves to obey their masters. Even worse than sort of the modern reading of this, back in the 1800s, uh, 17th century, 18th century in uh, the U.S., there were... uh, quote-unquote Christians, and I use that term possibly loosely, um, that, that would use this, the Bible, including passages like this, to justify that slaves were to obey their masters. Uh, one of the interesting things that happened during that time, though, was called the, the Slave Bible, where, um, where the Christian, white Christian slave owners would cut out the book of Exodus. This is a lot about liberation and freedom in there. They don't want the slaves to read that. Um, and they would make sure that they knew these parts here. But the question is, what is, uh, is that what really is being encouraged here? Is this a passage that, that justifies um, American, American slavery and what we understand? And this is where doing some contextual study and understanding we're reading this as 21st century Westerners through our 21st century lens. We need to understand what did it mean back then first, if we're going to make sure we understand it rightly today. And so... Uh, the, the slavery, just simply put, in the Roman Empire was vastly different, significantly different than the American historical slavery. Uh, let me give you a few points why. One, racial factors played no role. There wasn't a particular race that was enslaved. Um, there were all, all kinds of races. Um, people were slave and free. It was not uh, chattel slavery. People were not kidnapped like U.S. slavery and taken to a foreign land and forced to serve. Um, in fact, the Bible actually, including the New Testament, condemns this type of slavery, chattel slavery, multiple times, um, that it is against God's law. Roman slaves, instead, were people who sold themselves into slavery to pay a debt, back a debt or a loan, right? So, not saying slavery is great, but this is a different kind of slavery. And one of the reasons this type of slavery existed in the Roman Empire was because there was no welfare system. If you lost your job or you owed someone money, um, and you could not pay them back, you, you, you had to beg you had, or you had to sell yourself into uh, indentured servitude, basically, into being, this is why the ESV translates this as a bond slave. A bond slave is someone who has signed a bond to, to work for so many years. Most slaves could reasonably expect to be emancipated during their lifetime. So again, very different. Many slaves worked in a variety of specialized and responsible positions, and many did not even live with their owners. 
So it was like, get up, go report to your job. Come home at the end of the day. You have your family, you have your own home. Uh, Many slaves received education and training and special skills. And freed slaves, often uh, who became Roman citizens, often developed a client relationship with their former owners. So this is fundamentally different than American slavery. So when someone says, well, the Bible justifies slavery, you have to ask, okay, first, what do you mean? Um, And then one other just observation about this text. This text is not saying this is right and good and should be celebrated. If you look at it, it's really just saying this is a reality that you're living in. And in this context, uh, this is how um, we should you should live. But I would say it is important to note that though it was better and and slaves had rights in the Roman Empire. Um, it was not, it's still the idea of one person owning another, right? And, and so um, there's, there's problems with that. And Paul addresses it um, in a way that is interesting, is a radical reorientation of the slave-master relationship in the Roman Empire. Why? Because if you read this passage, something very interesting happens where there's supposed to be this mutual respect, right? This mutual respect that happens between the slave and the master or bondservant and master. Another factor to consider in relation to this is while biblical Christianity recognized that slavery was uh, part of the Roman Empire, many as a third of the citizens and, or people in Ephesus were probably slaves, um, it, it doesn't celebrate it. And in fact, um, it is the Christian worldview and the gospel throughout history that drove people to end slavery, to fight slavery. William Wilberforce, the great British abolitionist, didn't fight it because of just some idea that it wasn't right. It was deeply rooted in his own Christian faith and his understanding of all people being made in the image of God and worthy of dignity and respect. One of his friends, uh, mentors really, uh, during his life was a, was a former, um, not just slave trader, but like ran a, ran a slave trade ran a ship uh, bringing slaves from Africa, the coast of Africa, to uh, Britain. Did that for many, many years. Became a Christian, was radically saved, converted, repented of all of that, and spent the rest of his life trying to help in that. He was too old to run for office, too old to have impact. But William uh, Wilberforce had become connected with uh, with this man named John. And over time, John just kept uh, encouraging William. William leveraged his time. If you know his story, he leveraged his time, his energy, and actually his family's significant wealth to end slavery in Britain. His friend, his friend's name was John, but his last name was Newton. John Newton was the author of the famous hymn, Amazing Grace. So when he sung about being once I was blind, but now I see, uh, it was a beautiful tribute. He never got over the, 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 that event of, of the sin of his past, and it drove him to, to love others well and to seek to end slavery. Remember, the, same, um, the interesting thing about, about history is that almost all societies, historians would tell us that almost all societies had some form of slavery. And it's, so it's, almost, it's not an anomaly that slavery existed. It's, an, it's actually an anomaly that someone would step up and say, Labor shouldn't exist. And when you look at where that happens, oftentimes, not every situation, certainly not today, everywhere that anyone would speak about it, but the idea that slavery should not exist actually is rooted in the Christian faith. Remember, Paul, the same Paul that recognized and gave the instructions that I just read in Ephesians 6, also said in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
In that one statement, he just said, whatever your circumstances are, you are one in Christ. Uh, a radical reorientation. So this slave master, slave and master relationship becomes more of a work of a relationship. Uh, of, it becomes a relationship of mutual respect. And scholars have noted, interesting, that this type of countercultural approach to slavery, uh, while, while Paul didn't say, hey, let's, let's bring a revolution and end this thing today. Uh, what he did is introduce into the Christian worldview or the, the understanding of Christian relationships exactly what was needed to end slavery. F.F. Uh, F. Bruce, one of the greatest scholars, uh, New Testament scholars, Paul scholars of the 20th century, said it this way, the attitudes the gospel creates in Christians and therefore the attitudes Paul demands of Christians means that every kind of slavery inside the Christian community just couldn't last. Using this text and others like it, Paul set up a kind of slavery for failure. Paul set it up to wilt and die. So what we see in this passage then, the closest thing in our culture would be a, a contract employee, right? You've, you've, you, you've contracted to do this thing and uh, you are receiving these wages. And so that's what we're trying to look at this, um, this passage through today. There's a real failure of the church when it comes to understanding work, especially the church in the West uh, we, have, we have come to this idea that being a Christian in the workplace simply means I, I'm, I'm not supposed to lie or cheat or steal. Um, I'm probably not supposed to laugh at office gossip or j dirty jokes. Um, and I'm probably supposed to do my job, right? But that's it. There's no understanding that, that there's something deeper and more profound at work when you are at work. It doesn't sound very inspiring, does it? Because God says, hey, here's your job. Avoid sin and do your work. Do you feel like there ought to be something more to that? Especially to how much of your lives you and I spend in our workplaces, right? Contrast that idea with what the reformers, Martin Luther and John Calvin, brought out, this idea of vocation. This idea of a calling that you and I have with what we do in our, with our work. And it's one way we worship God. So let's look at two principles quickly here from this passage about work. The first one is all work is for God. All work is for God. As long as it's not sinful work, then it's work for sin. But all work, in essence, of the work that we are supposed to do as Christians is ultimately for God. I don't know if you, if you, if you walked into a bookstore and you saw in the Christian section or religious section a, a title of a book called Called to Serve Jesus, where would your mind go? I'm telling you where mine would have gone for much of my life. It would have been like, oh, that must be for that person who gives up their job and goes to serve as a missionary or goes to serve as a um, whatever. And, and they, they lay down their, their, uh, their agendas and they go serve the poor or whatever it is. That's what that must mean. But let me tell you, that's very far from the New Testament idea of what it means to serve the Lord. You, you see, in the New Testament, you can serve the Lord cleaning a house, doing accounting, being an attorney means uh, it doesn't mean necessarily just doing things for the church, though that is one expression of work, serving the church. Um, and it's not necessarily just telling people about Jesus or even serving a particular uh, immediate need. God created work for man. 
it's interesting when you go to the book of Genesis and you look at uh, the created order, um, many of us think of work as a four-letter word um, and that it exists because of the curse on man. But work was created before the fall of mankind, meaning that work was part of our original design. Look at Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The word work is translated cultivate or till in a lot of places, but is mostly translated in Hebrew as the word serve. We were to serve the ground, which meant to bring, bring the ground, cultivate it, bring it to its uh, a potential, if you will. So God sent Adam to serve in the garden by, uh, to bring it to its fullest potential. And you couple that with the command back in Genesis 1.28, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. And you get this picture that mankind, that God wanted man to spread across the face of the earth, working using work to cultivate the world into its potential. If you, uh, there, there's no like, evidence, but it's an interesting notion to think of that, um, that Eden, at least we can tell it was localized. It was an area um, and because there was, they sent them out of Eden, right? God sent them out of Eden, um, the garden. But one, one thought was God's original design was for us to take the Garden of Eden and spread it across the face of the earth that we were to continue to cultivate, continue to uh, spread it. So work is, work is part of God's plan and purpose here. I love the message paraphrase of Ephesians 6, 6 through 8. Um, it says, don't just do what you have to to get by, but work heartily as Christ's servants, doing what God wants you to do. And work with a smile on your face, always keeping in mind that no matter who happens to be giving the orders, you're really serving God. Good work will get you good pay from the master, regardless of whether you are slave or free. It's interesting that um, in modern times and modern culture, especially with uh, millennial and Gen Z, there's a, there's a real longing for work to have meaning. Boomers, uh, work was fine as long as it paid. <laughs> I, I'm not joking. Like because Think about it. They grew up in the Great Depression. Their parent, or the, heavily influenced by their parents who had the Great Depression, which meant any job's a good job if you get paid. Right, and so uh, they they would just work uh, for money. But millenn- Gen X started it. Gen uh, Millennials and Gen Z are, are really pushing it. So we want meaning. We want meaning in our workplace. And the problem is because we've sort of lost this idea of of any objective or moral meaning. People try to look to temporary things to give them deeper meaning. Now, work can give you some sense of meaning. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, the McKinsey Consulting recently uh, wrote an article. Highlighting how people are looking at their jobs for meaning and purpose, their research shows that 70% of employees said their sense of purpose is defined by their work. But that's hard to find, isn't it? If you manage to find it initially, it's hard to keep it, right? To keep this sense of my purpose, this is a, my purpose in life through this job, which is, I think, one of the reasons why um, jobs come and go for, for so many millennials, because they, they, they take this job, they go, oh, this is it. This is going to give meaning and purpose to my life. This is what I want to do. This is what I'm made to do. This is where, uh, you know, where I'm, I'm supposed to make an impact. And because work is post-sin, <laughs> post-fall, it never can satisfy like that. It can never bring full meaning by itself. How could it? How could it answer the deepest longings of your soul? Have you seen your boss? Have you ever been around the board of directors? Anybody read every morning? You just get up in the morning, first thing you do is read your company's mission statement, and you're just like, oh, yes, can't wait to get to my job today, right? 
Maybe initially, maybe you first started at the company, you love their vision, and then you got behind the scenes and realized, uh, you know, don't ever watch sausage get made if you want to eat sausage. Uh, so you got behind it and you realized, this thing's a mess, it's crazy, it's awful, it's hard. And, and so you like the idea, but you got there and it's not it. But the person in Christ works not for those things, but for God, ultimately stewarding and serving, uh, stewarding the gifts God's given them and serving him through their job. This is, this is how, um, how Christians are called to approach. Yes, work has a purpose, work has a meaning, but it is caught up in something bigger. Because if your work and is supposed to give you your life purpose, then that means everything terminates on your work. And what happens when your boss is eating you alive? What happens when that project you're working on just doesn't get finished in time? What happens when someone else gets that promotion and your life purpose was caught up in your job? But we weren't made to do that. We were made to find deeper purpose in working our jobs for God. Verse 9, Paul Paul really addresses bosses here. He said they need to remember something, that they're serving God as well. Um, and that the employee is ultimately not serving them, but serving God, which means, again, having equal dignity and value. Listen, I know some of you are bosses. Some of you have people, direct reports to you, um, and some of them can't, can't tie their shoes. Like You're like really struggling maybe to supervise them, and you want to just uh, you want to help them find the door. But you're called to serve God. In your workplace, and whether that person under you is serving God or not, you're to serve them in a way that reflects God. Work should serve God, serving the good of mankind in some way. If you forget that and forget what you're doing, this is when burnout happens. This is when frustration happens in your job. This is when we lose focus. This is when we get bored. Because you've lost the sense that your job, whether you like it today or tonight, you know, I know that your job is supposed to be where where, um, you serve God because it's your job right now. (laughs) I don't know what it's going to be in a week or a month or a year. Maybe it is something else. Maybe God is supposed to call you somewhere else. But when you get up and go to your job tomorrow, I can tell you that God wants you to serve him there. Secondly, work requires all your heart. So not just all work is for God, but work requires your whole heart. It's a weird thing, um, Paul, Paul's call to employees here, he, he talks about the heart, right? Definitely not something your boss will come in and invite you in. I just want to talk to you about your heart, right? <laughs> no, not in today's workplace, right? Not in your cutthroat workplace. But, but Paul says um, God cares about our heart. He says in verse 5, we're to serve God with a sincere heart. Verse 6, doing the will of God from the heart. You see, it's not enough for us to go do our jobs. We need to do them to the Lord with our hearts. Why is this important? Because Paul tells us to, to look past our earthly boss and understand that we're serving God. And let's, let's just admit that. Doesn't that help motivate us a bit? Especially if our job's hard, we're going through a difficult phase. Doesn't it help us to know, hey, even though I'm doing this, I don't like this. This is a hard season, difficult people, difficult boss, difficult circumstances. I'm not even sure if it's a career I'm supposed to be in. I don't know what else, but this is my job today. That you can actually find joy in doing that because you're serving God. Paul says, your real boss here is God. And he's good. He's your creator, savior, redeemer. He's your father. He deserves hard work. This is very practical. 
Because one of the things that happens, I, I you know, let you back behind the veil. I, I work for the church in essence, but would also do my job if the church didn't pay me. So you understand that, right? I would go get a job, probably uh, teaching or something, but I, I would, uh, because, but the church pays me. But there are at times, I can turn it into a job. I can turn it into work. I'm just reading emails. I'm just, you know, checking things off. Um, and I find my heart defaulting, my heart defaulting to simply getting things done and not serving God. We're all tempted to do it. I would argue if I'm tempted to do that in the church, you better be tempted to do that in your job or you're more holy than I am, right? So maybe you are. Um, <laughs> but you're going to have hard days, right? You're going to get discouraged. You're going to have hard times. But this is Paul saying, hey, remember, remember you're serving God to serve with a sincere heart. Now, this should not be confused with putting all of your heart into your job. There's plenty of people in this city who are not Christians who are putting their heart and soul into their work, right? Why? Because they're getting their entire identity, hope, meaning, and purpose from it. And so they work, and they can't stop working. They don't know how to unplug. There is no such thing as genuine rest. Rest, actual taking a day off, is only for the purpose so that I would have more energy to work when I get back. Rest is never an end to itself. They're the people who go on vacation and they bring their laptop, um, even though it's against the law for your company to require you to check email on your vacation days, you will still do it and the company will be glad to have you do it. Why? Because they don't care about your soul and they want you to give your heart. Listen, they can get you to work 60 hours and pay you for 40. Duh. And you know what? When you burn out and you quit, they will just hire someone else to do your job. They do not, I'm not, not every company, there are some out there, I think, that are finally getting the clue and saying, hey, we need to require vacation and condemn people who check their email on vacation, <laughs> right? Like a violation of company policy or whatever. Like there's a few out there, but most of them want you to worship your job, not worship God through your job. And this is killing us quite literally. Harvard Business School <laughs> had an article uh, based on some research they call Dying to Lead, How Reaching the Top Can Kill You Sooner. It so shows how the, uh, the professional careers, the pursuit of a professional success can shorten your life by years. Years. If a company can get you to work extra hours, they're going to have you do it. So whatever temptations you have to overwork, the company's not going to help you with that. You have to you have to go to the Lord. You have to be discipled in that. You need, you need some brothers and sisters in Christ who can walk with you in that. I think the question that would be important for, for us to ask ourselves is this. At any given point, and maybe very consistently and regularly, am I working for God with a sincere heart or am I working for something else? Am I working for God with a sincere heart or am I working for something else? I'm going to have, um, in just a moment, have a couple come uh, share briefly their own story. But one of the things with work and serving God with a sincere heart is career changes, right? And especially, I would argue, COA, it's one of the things that I've learned over the years. <laughs> you know, I'll talk to one person one week and, you know, I, they're working for this company. And then I talk to them a few weeks later and I'm like, oh, I switched shops. And it's like, 
you know, I've had like five jobs in my life or something. I, it's not many. But that's common for Gen X. Uh, millennials, it's, you know, like something like 38 jobs or something like that uh, in their first year. Um, <laughs> but, so it's not uncommon. But one of the questions is, should I stay in this job? Should I go? Should I take this promotion or not? And, or should I leave the city for this job or not? And I would, I'm going to say this as gently as I can. I have seen many people over the years at COA who simply get a great job offer and the immediate response is yes, and they move out of the city. There, there's never a conversation they announce. Oh, I'm going. We're gone. Like, oh, did you, did you pray about that with anybody? Right? We've had some people over the years who've actually said, oh, wait a second, this is a pretty good offer, um, but I just want to make sure I'm serving the Lord with this. And so they, they talk to their community group and, and pray with those around them. And that's why I'm having uh, Chris and Christine uh, come. Uh, Chris Wynn and Christine uh, Park have been members at COA for several years now. You may remember Christine, we appointed her as a uh, missionary, or uh, a missionary, a chaplain to uh, Mass General Hospital a while back. They have to be appointed by a local uh, church body. Uh, to be um, part of the, that association, and so they, um, she's serving, and Chris is a physician, runs a lab, so I'm going to have them come on out. Um, the bad news is they're, they're moving, <laughs> but I'm going to let you guys stand in the middle here, um, but the good news is I, and I have to share, I've shared this with them personally, but I've been deeply encouraged by the way that they thought about it and prayed about it and had people come around them, so I'm not going to share your story, but let you, let you guys share. Test, test. Oh. Can you hear me? I think it's just picking up my mic. <laughs> I realized that right after I held it up. <laughs> oh, yeah. There you go. I'll take that. That's on. Hello? Oh, okay, great. Hello, Koa family. <laughs> Uh, my name's Chris. Christine. Uh, we've been attending COA since 2018 after our friends Grace and Jinwan actually uh, invited us to their CG. That was our first interaction with COA. Uh, shortly after, we became covenant members and we went through a full submersion baptism by Bland. Um, we currently are uh, in the Chang CG, <laughs> representing the north side for those out there. Uh, we, we have split. We're between two, between two sides of the lake. I mean, the river. <laughs> um, today will be our last in-person service as we're moving to Cleveland this week. Throughout our time here in Boston and with COA, we received many blessings through uh, the fellowship with our brothers and sisters. We, for example, had two pregnancy losses, and each time God has encouraged us and blessed us through the support from our spiritual family here at COA. And pursuing these new jobs in Cleveland would mean leaving our spiritual family who had been once the core of our spiritual life. Last summer, I was approached to lead and establish a new research center in Cleveland. Cleveland Clinic's Heart Center was looking to create its first ever research center in 100-year history. Of course, I immediately dismissed this opportunity. I don't want to do that. <laughs> but I found myself in prayer, always being pointed back to this new calling. You see, I had achieved everything I wanted here in Boston, grants to run my lab, recognition in my field, faculty positions at prestigious universities. And yet deep down in my heart, I sensed that God wanted to use these talents to serve God's people. 
God knew I was feeling empty despite all of the achievements, all of the accolades. God knew I wanted to not just be locked in an ivory tower and enjoy the status quo, but actually use my research to serve people. This new research center in Cleveland was my chance to do this. It was my answer from my sort of unknown prayer from that. But it was hard work, and honestly, I was pretty lazy <laughs> and pretty cozy in the job I was in. Um, in parallel, I was also invited to be the new chaplain educator to train the next generation of chaplain at Cleveland Clinic. And I knew it was a fantastic opportunity, but it meant we would leave our comfort zones, our friends, church family. We also moved to our dream home less than a year ago. I was happy at MGH as a chaplain, really enjoyed my job, colleagues, patients. And there was part of us that wanted to just settle here. How can we walk away from all the blessings that God gave us here in Boston? We were both being called to serve, but we were reluctant to follow. But then God had different plans for us. As Proverbs 16 verse 9 says, In their hearts humans plan their course, but the Lord established their steps. We were grappling with what God put us in front of us, and we needed support. So we leaned on and shared with our CG and other members of our church about our potential new jobs. It was a prayer request every week to see God's discerning wisdom. It was a horizontal relationship with our brothers and sisters in Christ along with our vertical relationship with God that made us see that God was inviting us to serve Him through the doors He was opening. Without our close walk with Jesus and our CG, we wouldn't have the courage and wisdom to see the Lord calling us to leave our comfort zones and to go to Cleveland. So through prayers, we realized that when God called many spiritual figures in the Bible to leave their comfort zone and follow God, we would like to conclude and share our quote, quoting a verse from Joshua 1.9. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid and do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. And so we want to say last as we leave, so just may God continue to bless us and the church and give us whatever we are and to keep our, our eyes on, on the Lord and serve in our workplace. Thank you. Yes, and take us. Let me pray for you. I uh, wanted to pray for... Oh, Christine. Uh, it was God's blessing that during COVID we were uh, we were on a Zoom CG for together for most of a year, so really got to walk through COVID, which was hard enough. But um, also just um, Christine being a chaplain at MGH during COVID, you can just imagine, um, and and Chris's challenges as well um, at MGH. It, it was a joy to get to know them so much better. Um, I know they're the last people God's going to call away from COA, um, so uh, we're just going to pray for them. No. <laughs> um, but join me in praying for them. Um, God, we thank you for Chris and Christine. Thank you for their, um, their time here. Uh, Lord, they've, they've been a blessing uh, to this church family, and we delight that they have um, also grown in their faith. And Lord, you have bound our hearts together as brothers and sisters in Christ. And um, Lord, we thank you for the uh, intentionality and just uh, wisdom they used in discerning this step. Um, we pray for their, uh, their, their move to Cleveland. May it go smoothly. May you give them a, a strong community uh, of Christians to walk with, Lord, um, and use them. Use them both as, um, as they train others, as they um, supervise others. Lord, may they um, reflect Christ uh, and the love um, he has. 
In your name we pray, amen. So as you, as you go um, to your work tomorrow, I want to remind you that, that um, as Paul says in Ephesians 5.18, we're to be filled with the Spirit. God wants you to be filled with the Spirit, yes, at your job. <laughs> filled with the Spirit at your job. Uh, God has given you the gospel so that your identity is secure, so you don't have to look for it at your job. You can work out of your identity in Christ and not for some identity the world's trying to hand you. And then uh, lastly, uh, God has given you his word. And if you're going to make wise decisions like Chris and Christine have about life, about changing careers, about changing jobs, things like that, you need to be able to stand firm against the enemy's lies because they will come for you. Um, It's not a mistake that next Sunday, the very next passage in this uh, Paul's letter is spiritual warfare. Ephesians 6, 10 through 20 is all about spiritual warfare. And so you need to take up the sword of the Spirit, right? The Word of God. Be rooted and grounded in the Word, even as you walk full of the Spirit, resting in the gospel of Christ. We're going to move into our time of response. And the good news that we have today as we, take, uh, we prepare to take communion is that Christ has done all the work for us. And literally, we're invited into Sabbath rest in Him. That's what the book of Hebrews says. He is our Sabbath. He is our rest, which means we have it all the time. Even in our work, we can have rest in Christ. Uh, and so today, if you've, uh, maybe you've been challenged with the way you've been approaching your job. Maybe you've, maybe you've uh, been challenged with the way you've been approaching um, others in your workplace or your career and just how maybe, maybe you've let some pressures and some uh, ways of thinking around you shape you more than you've allowed Christ to shape you in your work. Um, and so take time to repent of that. Take time to lay that down. And then uh, you can step out anytime over this next song. If you're a Christian, uh, out the side door here, there's communion stations outside. We have to eat outside of the room. Uh, no food or drinks allowed in here. But you can take outside and then uh, drop your trash off on your way back in the back door there. But anytime over this next song, uh, everybody doesn't have to rush at once. Uh, take time for the, to, to pray. Maybe you need to pray with someone next to you. Uh, if you're not a Christian, uh, this is the one part we'd ask you to abstain from because this is really for those who have taken that step of faith, who've crossed that line. Um, you are certainly welcome to. If you, I know sometimes if you're like the only person in your section like still standing, you can be like, I, uh, I don't want to be the only one standing here by myself. Uh, you are welcome to walk out with everyone. You just kind of walk and make your way right around and come back in. Uh, we certainly, normally we'd pass. We, or we, used, to, we used to do it um, pass at times. And we would sometimes during service when we had communion stations in the room back in uh, our other school, we were able to like move out a little more easily. But um, I understand now if it's easier for you to step out as well. Let's pray. All right, let's go ahead and stand. I'm going to pray and then we can respond together. Jesus, thank you for the work you have done. That on the cross you said it is finished. And that while we may toil in this world uh, because it is broken, our souls can find rest in you. Lord, we, we all um, struggle with our jobs from time to time. We, we can be discouraged. We can be overwhelmed. We can turn it into an idol. We can uh, even neglect it and be lazy at times. Lord, I pray you would... Um, convict us where we need that draw us into an understanding of serving you in joy 
and understanding what it means to serve you with all of our hearts in our, in our workplaces for your glory, for our good, and for the good of the name of Christ, we pray.